0: It's amazing that, you know, we can sing like that, that God's love never fails. As Patricia and I have been interacting with you, um, like the last time we were here, you know, we're just struck by not only your heart for God, but also for many of you, just the deep, unbelievable brokenness that you carry. And I know that sometimes when you study a life like Daniel's, you, you know, you kind of, you put him on a pedestal and you look at him as a hero, like some sort of a superhero, and it's hard to identify. And that's why last night I tried to spend the time to help you see that the, that the, that the young man that God used was an unbelievably shattered and broken young man that had been carted off, you know, to another land in, in total brokenness, and so then how do you, and, 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 just, and it just goes to show that the, the ones that God uses are not the perfect ones, but oftentimes the most broken ones. And so I hope that as we talk more about now the personal life, the inner life of Daniel tonight, if you're experiencing that, you don't feel overwhelmed or discouraged and feel like you can't connect to Daniel because he's some sort of hu- superhero, but that you can connect to Daniel because he knew the brokenness that you have. In the same way that our Lord understands the brokenness that you had, because he was broken for us. And so, you know, this is an iconic picture of of the time in Tiananmen Square. You know, I saw this live happening on television, and I was just shattered by this young man standing in front of these tanks and the power of, of of that country. And and to me, it reminded me in in many ways as almost a metaphor for the life of Daniel, of of a solitary life standing against the power of this nation. And, you know, who knows what kind of brokenness, who knows what kind of life that this young man was carrying. And yet at this point in time, you know, he became the image of one that stood against a whole system. And so, you know, as I thought about Daniel some more, and we we kind of talked about his background up here, And and last night, we talked more specifically about the ground that we were fighting on and and the enemy and the system that we were up against in this world called Babylon. Tonight, I want to shift to say, what was it about Daniel himself? How was he prepared for Babylon? Because it wasn't like he had gone to school, to military training, you know, prepared himself in psychological warfare and and all these other things to kind of take on this this super assignment to go go infiltrate and stand against this government. He was just a 15-year-old guy that was living a normal life. and, And then his nation comes, his city comes under siege and the people are starved and then they're carted off into captivity and they end up in Babylon. And so the question that was going over and over in my mind was, how could a 15-year-old boy be ready for this? When you think of a normal sophomore boy in high school today, think, how could he be ready for this? And so as I thought about it, um, the verse that God got, that called to my mind, really, was in Daniel 11:32, 32. And in there, the, the scriptures say that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, not that this was kind of an accomplished fact by the time that Daniel was 15, because Daniel's knowledge of God would grow to mind-blowing dimensions by the time you get to the end of, of Daniel. But he was already being anchored in an understanding of God that most of his peers and most of his nation didn't have. And while others may have been pursuing knowledge, news, a way of escape, a strategy to succeed in the new regime, Daniel was pursuing God. And just as, a, just as an aside, um, when we were in the college ministry, um, a couple of things that we did was that we encouraged students really to focus on this And it didn't get any better than taking some time out in in our Bible studies, in our ministry routines, in our school routines, to read several classic books that we would discuss. And so I'm just going to give these names to you. I just thought about this on the way over here tonight. One was a classic by uh, A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God and his accompanying book, The Knowledge of God, Knowledge of the Holy. Another one is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And these are not speed reads. You know, it's the kind of book that any of these books, you kind of read a page, and you got to put it down. You've got to think about it, right? And then if you want to get into it a little bit more, there was another older book called The Attributes of God by an author named Pink. And if you really want to go back to a time when people really thought about things in depth, there was a book called The Existence and Attributes of God by a, a Puritan um, by the name of um, Stephen Sharnock. And it's a book that's about this thick. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you measure the font type in kind of microns. <laughs> and there's like only eight chapters in the book. And so there's like 150 pages on just the holiness of God. And you think about in-depth meditation. So just just this is just kind of commercial break here, you know. But I just I would encourage you to pick up one of these and maybe with your group spend some time reading these and, th- and learn how these men really spent time meditating and learning about who God is. So the question is, if Daniel was one who knew God, and you think, how at that age did he know God? Did he come to know God? How do we come to know God? And so there's really, what you're getting is a bonus tonight. There's kind of like two messages in one. And so this is kind of like the first one, you know, to kind of tee up the evening a little bit. And, and what I'm going to say here will sound a little basic, but at the same time, I, I want, you know, we never, we never get past those fundamental things, do we? And so I think that one of the things that we do, that Daniel learned God was through the scriptures. Remember, Patricia was talking about, it, and I talked about it last night, that in his grandfather's generation, Josiah was the king, and he had rediscovered the scrolls that had been lost. And a number of years ago when I was speaking to one of uh, uh, the groups, Neil was reminding me of a question I asked, and and that question was, if the scriptures were to disappear from our lives tonight, if our Bibles were all to be gone and vanish overnight, how long would it take us to realize that the word of God was not in our lives anymore? How long would it take for us to understand that the scriptures weren't there? And yet, there was a whole generation of people in Judah that didn't know that the scriptures were gone until the priest cleaning out the temple rediscovered it. And you know, there's a corresponding question. If the Spirit of God were just to silently leave us tonight, how long would it be before we realized he was gone from our lives? How in touch are we with the Spirit of God in a moment by moment basis? Do we know him that well that when he's not around, we know it? I'm painfully aware of when I'm not with Patricia when I'm on a trip, you know, or when she's gone. Do we know that about God's presence? And so, how did Daniel remember? How did he learn from the scriptures? Well, he remembered probably the Book of the Law, and probably his grandparents and his parents were sharing about this time in Josiah, and 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 they were, and maybe they maybe they were one of the few faithful ones beyond Josiah's reign that that reminded the young people of the scrolls in the Book of the Law. And so that Daniel was studying them, memorizing them, learning them. I think he would have heard the word of God through Jeremiah's message because Jeremiah was a contemporary. And so maybe he heard others talking about what Jeremiah said, maybe he even had the privilege somehow, even as a youngster, to be kind of on the, the outside of a crowd as Jeremiah is speaking the words of God. And then one historian surmises that as the, as the young men were carried off into captivity over this four months, that one of the things that they did because they had memorized it, was that they recited day by day Psalm 119, you know, Psalm 119 is an acrostic that comes from from the the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Hebrew uh, alphabet, and every every stanza uh, corresponds to one of the letters. And so were they reminding themselves on this journey, you know, maybe quietly next to one another, reciting the scriptures and remembering who God is, remembering the truth of God, and so, in our own lives, do we, do we kind of go to the scriptures to remind ourselves who God is and what God wants? And as we interact with one another, do we share those things and say, remember this. Remember what God says. Remember what God is like through the scriptures. And so that is not only a personal reflection, but we're interacting with one another. And in that way, reminding ourselves and teaching ourselves who is God. I think a second thing that he did was probably Daniel reflected. He didn't just remember, he reflected. As the psalmist said, know me and try me. And I think Daniel was painfully aware that he was not going into exile because of some accident, but because God's judgment had fallen on a nation that had turned their backs on him, that they had sinned, they had broken the law. And so rather than pointing a finger at the rest of the nation and said, man, you've really screwed up my life. You know, because of you, I'm, I, you know, I'm having this really bad experience. Throughout Daniel, you'll see Daniel falling on his face before God. And in a very personal way, confessing the sins of the nation as if they were his own sins. And I think that as he was listening to the scriptures, he didn't just point to the world outside and said, man, look how messed up it is. He fell on his knees, and he, and he asked God to try his own thoughts, try his own heart, try his own actions, try his own beliefs, and understood that he was a part of that, and humbled himself and confessed to God, and asked God to purify his own heart and mind. We need that kind of humility, I think, before God for the sins of our, our world and our nation if we want to be an agent of change and influence in our nation. Daniel didn't stand in judgment of it. He took his place before the judgment throne of God. The third thing I think is Daniel observed as a young man. He probably saw others before he was carried off. He probably observed the behavior and the actions and the reactions of people. He listened to the conversations and what they were thinking he observed Jeremiah standing there as a lonely voice in the persecution that he endured as he tried to speak God's truth. And, and, and he began to see the consequences in the lives of the people around him and in the consequences of the lives of the people in his nation. And then as he's walking, right, with these young men and these other thousands that are being carried off into captivity, he's watching them, seeing how they're responding to the trials and tribulations, how they're, how they're responding to the suffering that they're going through. And as he observes, in their suffering especially, and maybe in the kindnesses and the services he sees as as one person falls and somebody else supports them and serves them and, and, and lays down their life for somebody else, he's observing, he's observing. And so you learn about God through remembering, through reflecting, and through observing And then I think you also think, you also learn through your own trials and sufferings, but also the blessings. I think what Patricia was sharing this morning, we we would never ask to go through those things and to learn from those things. But I will tell you that in every trial that we've had, as hard as it is, they've taught us something about God. If we didn't have want, we would have never known that God is the one that supplies all our needs. If we hadn't ever been lonely, we would have never known that God is the friend who will never leave us nor forsake us. You know? And, and if, if, we didn't, if we didn't experience hurt and pain like we have, we would have never known God is the great physician and the healer. And if we didn't, if we didn't feel crushed, we would have never known him as a good shepherd and our father. And so it's not just for us to endure things that we ask God's grace, but in in enduring things, we also learn about who he is. And we find out it's not the things that he gives that really heal us, it's who he is that heals us. And so as Daniel marched, he could see the consequences he knew that what was happening to him was no accident. He humbled himself. He sought God. And and um, you know, I was thinking, and this quote came to mind. You know, and uh, Jer- Jeremy, you know, you'll you'll appreciate this, but in the prison, in in the, um, <clears throat> in the concentration camps where Corrie Ten Boom was, her sister would remind Corrie that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And I think this was the place where Daniel was living as he went on this march and approached the gates of of Babylon. And so I think that by the time he got to Babylon, he was focused. Through it all, he was focused. He was focused on the person of God. He was focused on the promises of God And he was focused on the purpose of God, not only for the nation of Israel, but also for himself. That's part one. (laughs) So now let's go back to Daniel 1 again. And think about Daniel's account and what it tells us. So in the very first verse, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Seems kind of like a pretty mundane sort of a headline to open up a book as significant (laughs) as Daniel. But what I want you to think about here is what did he not write about in the first chapter? He doesn't start out saying, oh my gosh, I've got I to tell you about all the suffering that we had. i got to tell you about you know, the terrible treatment we had on the march. And i got to tell you about all the suffering and loss. I've got to tell you about the unfairness of all of this and the abuse. No. He begins by saying that this was a just and sovereign part of the plan of God. And it was a righteous judgment of God upon the nation. And so what was happening to him and what he would describe through the rest of the book of Daniel is not an accident, where he's trying to describe how he survived some sort of catastrophic accident of life. He's saying this was foretold by the prophets, And so Daniel knew, because this was all a part of God's sovereign plan for the nation, that this was also part of God's sovereign plan for his life. And just by stating this historical fact, he's he's describing to you and he's explaining to you who is on the throne of his life. And the second part of it, though, was that there's a psalm in 137 that was written by the exiles, and they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And Daniel understood from this song that this story was ultimately not about Babylon, but about Jerusalem. It wasn't about this world. It was about the kingdom to come. And so, knowing God and his purpose, Daniel knew that life wasn't about which city you lived in, but which city you lived for. And as you take your place in life outside of here you're going to be tempted to live in the city and for the city of Babylon <laughs> But the only way to survive it is to understand it's not where God puts you down and you may not end up in a place that you of your choosing you may end up in a totally surprising place whether it's geographical or societal or economic, or you know, commercial, whatever. But it's not the place that you're in that life is about, it's who you're living for. And Daniel knew that. And so when he walked in the gates, he was prepared for something he couldn't imagine was gonna happen, and it happened quickly. Because the rest of the events that unfold in the first chapter didn't take place over years of time but immediately as they were put into the assimilation, you know, in a a real trivial way, kind of the new staff orientation for administration into Babylon. So I wanna go back over the strategy of Babylon and now examine them one by one again, but this time to look at how did Daniel respond to each one of those challenges. Okay, you ready? So let's look at this. Daniel's response to the first strategy. Remember the first strategy was to bring God down to size, make him small and make him irrelevant. And this was pointed out in in the second verse where it's described how the vessels were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, brought into the land of Shinar, which is the place of Babylon and again, that word is very deliberate because it says these vessels of God were brought to hostile territory. And then they were put into this treasury, this museum, this exhibit hall, so to speak, where all of the gods of all of the nations that are been conquered by Babylon are put into these little exhibits to bring every god down to size and under the dominion of Babylon to show who was really in charge, who was really powerful, who was really God. And so when you think about it though, that was what, that was Babylon's view, that was Nebuchadnezzar's view of these vessels in this exhibit. But when, you, when Daniel looked at these vessels in the, in the exhibit hall, in the museum, what did they represent to him? Well, I would propose that they represented three things to him. A reminder of God's presence, a reminder of God's character, and a reminder of God's promise. Let me unpack that a little bit more. When he looked at the vessels, he saw God's presence. He remembered that those vessels belonged in the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the place where God dwelt. That was the holy place. And when we wanted to meet God, he would go to the temple. And that's where God would be. That's where the presence of God was. But when Daniel saw the vessels, I think, in Babylon, I think that it reminded him that God was still with him. God had sent a reminder to say, I'm still with you. And when he would go to the exhibits, it would be a reminder that God wasn't back there somewhere. And now I'm here, and he's not near me. But that every time he looked at them, it was a reminder that God is with him here. And I want you to know wherever you go, no matter how dark or how far you, you know, life takes you, God is with you. He is present with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And sometimes that is all you have to cling to. I know that when Patricia and I were going through these things, there were times when we were absolutely exhausted and there was nothing else that you could do except just to hold on. And how fierce the battle was just to hold on. You know, when we say believe in God and believe in God's presence, we feel like It's just something that kind of magically happens. But sometimes there is a fierceness that we have to bring to holding on. And I can only characterize it by thinking that when I went from Chicago airport to pick up Annie in order to take her to the treatment center, she was standing outside of her dorm shivering. And when I got out of the car, she came over to me couldn't speak but in in the way that only a child can do held on to me with a ferocity that you can't believe the idea was that i'm holding on to my father and 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 so sometimes in our lives we have to hold on to god's presence that way and i think this is what daniel was doing when he was looking at that but he was also, when he was thinking about God's presence and looking at those things, he remembered also where God really sat. And he, you know, and he might have recalled to mind the words of Isaiah, where he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And so in the middle of this thing, as he's walking through the gates of Babylon, enslaved for the rest of his life, And it looks like Babylon is in charge. He knew where God really was. And he knew who really was sovereign. And he knew who really was high and lifted up above all. And we should never forget that. We should never forget that. You know, when you're walking through big cities like Chicago or New York, and you're looking up at these towering buildings, and you feel so small walking around the streets of those Cities, don't you? And it's almost like those cities are saying, look how powerful and mighty we are. And yet Daniel saw God high and lifted up, above, over, all that. The second thing that those vessels reminded him was of God's character. He said, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. And so those vessels also reminded him of why they were there, that God was holy and the people had sinned. And so in the midst of Babylon, he was reminded of the holiness of God, and he held on to the holiness of God. The second part of the God's character, though, he says, from Lamentations, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that awesome? So that in, 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 and Jeremiah writes this lamentations, like Patricia said, in the saddest, darkest hour of their history. And I think that Daniel had a, a sense of this too. That in the midst of it all, What this verse is saying is that the reality that you wake up to in the morning is not the circumstances that are thrown at you. The reality that you wake up to every morning is this. The reality of your life is the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. His, you know, His never-ending mercies. When you wake up in the morning, that is your life. That is the reality that you live in. It's not the reality of the streets of Babylon. And if we can hold on to that, we can have hope, can't we? That that's God's character. That's who we know. That's who we know. And God's promise. In the same, in the same chapter in Lamentations, Jeremiah said, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And Daniel, you could see throughout the book of Daniel, would see the hope of the return. And more than that, he saw the hope of the ultimate climax of time when the Most High God would establish his kingdom all again. And so God's presence, God's character, God's promise that helps us walk into Babylon and be ready. If you want a challenge, I would encourage you to think about this. It really struck me some years back, Moses was having a bad leadership day, okay? (laughs) You know, with his people, they were just, you know, this was kind of, this wasn't just kind of one of those good boss, bad boss things, it was like, he, he was a good boss, but he just had kind of a really, kind of a rough outfit to lead. You know, they brought down the tablets. You know, the people were running amok. You know, they made this golden calf. So he goes back up the mountain, and he's totally frustrated with the whole assignment, and he's complaining to God about it. And God says, no, it's come." And then he says, look, God, please. He said, just show me your glory. And God paused and said, all right, get down here. And God caused his glory to come past him. And when Moses came down the mountain, people looked at him coming down the mountain and his presence was changed. It was was lit up. And what happens is that when we see the glory of God, it changes us. And so I think as you're saying, I wanna know God, this is what Moses was asking. He said, show me your glory. And I would just challenge you to just make that a prayer and just say, God, show me your glory. Don't, maybe don't ask, change me. Moses didn't say that. Moses just said, show me your glory. And it changed him. The second test then was strategy was to isolate his followers and to discourage them. Remember that? that the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, into this program. They'd been separated from their families and their circles. Now they were separated even further from the other exiles. The march had beaten them down. They had no place to return to, you know, no one to retreat to. They were even made eunuchs which eliminated their ability to have a hope of marriage and a family and, and, and humiliated them in a way that kind of further subjugated them. <laughs> but I think that one of the things that I, I see here is that you see Daniel's in a relationship with three other young men. Maybe he made friends, maybe he knew them before. I, I, I kind of think that he probably met them along the march, somewhere along the way. And they, and they were kind of kindred spirits. And they, maybe they were the ones that, between the four of them, they were sharing the scriptures together, praying together, reminding themselves of one another, encouraging one another to stay true, you know? And so I think that our response to this isolation is what the scriptures say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them. What I found along the way, you don't need many. You just need a couple. You know, it's kind of like if you've got the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and a little help from your friends, you can do it. We're obsessed in our world, I think, sometimes with bigness, especially in terms of number. You know, how many many followers do you have? (laughs) You know, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, you know. When, when, when God is saying, I think over and over in the scriptures, we say you just need one, two, three. And so wherever you go, ask God to give you one, two, or three kindred spirits. And, 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 as, and even as far away as you can go from here, I think that you can often find that. And then once, it's, a, it's, it's better, I think, to have just a couple of like-minded people a little band of brothers, Elton Trueblood, the Quaker writer, said he had a book called The Company of the Committed a long time ago. I got this, all this old literature stuff here, don't I, Neil? <laughs> old school. <laughs> but the idea there, though, again, is that it's not, it's, not, it's not the numbers. It's the commitment of the few. And in life, if you can have a few of those people like that, It's amazing. I know that every Christmas we have a friend, a family that comes to our home. And um, Bob and Jennifer and their two boys have been coming since their guys were little. Bob and Jennifer, um, they, they, um, they had no parents uh, that were alive and so we kind of got adopted. But Bob, I met when he was going into graduate school and accounting at the University of Texas. Not a follower of Christ, yet. And at the same time, came to Christ and then really just became like closer than a brother. And when we went out to Irvine to start a ministry out there, Bob moved out there and helped us. And through the years as he's lived and and ministered in Europe and other places and and now working in the University of Texas system, um, he and his family have just become like one of those brothers. You know, what a family that just kind of holds us together and that we've struggled and gone through all of life together like this. And the years don't seem to diminish that. And I would just covet for each of you some lifelong friends like this. And you may already have the beginnings of that right here, like Bob and I had, you know, when we were sitting around in, in conferences like this. And as you get together, what do you do? Well, the scriptures just say, one another. (laughs) One another, it's as simple as that. Love one another, encourage one another, be patient with one another, right? Speak truth to one another. (laughs) You know, and uh, and on and on and on and on and on. And I think that it doesn't take much, but just get a few. Then Daniel then faced the third third stratagem, which was the, the indoctrination one where they put, were put into the program to be exposed to the language and the literature. And, you know, and Daniel was a bright guy. And so you know, what I think about this though is when you think about it, is that his, like we were saying last night, that what he was being indoctrinated in, what he was being taught was an admixture of good as well as things that were lies. But Daniel had had a couple of things going for him. And I would say this. One was that he had a foundation of knowing God and, and, and the wisdom that comes from the scriptures that gave Daniel to be not only an exceptional learner, but a critical thinker. And I'm really concerned in our time that we're losing the ability to be discerning people with the ability to think critically about what's in front of us. So... You go to a passage like Romans 12.2, who knows that scripture here? Somebody can, can, somebody, you guys went to the scripture memory workshop, so, yeah. Do you not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed for by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? Right, and I think this is the heart of what we see in Daniel here. A couple of, t- three translations here. One says, This is the message saying, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. How well-adjusted are you to your culture? How much do you argue for the things in your culture to say that that's right? Maybe, but are you so well-adjusted that you can't even think critically about the things that swirl around you? In the J.B. Phillips translation, it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. What is shaping your thinking? What is shaping your beliefs? What is shaping your worldview? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I wanna wanna caution you here, because I think that we're in a time where there is a light, so to speak, That is not a light, but the deepest darkness. In an age of fake news, the bigger danger is fake truth. But because we don't grasp, really, truth of the scriptures in a deep and discerning way, we follow that false light. And I think one of the biggest challenges of our time is just to understand the question, what is truth? With all the stuff that you're exposed at instantly when you flip on a screen, do we have a world of people who can look at that and discern if that's true? Well, how do you do that? And I have two suggestions. The first is that it begins with you knowing the one who is the truth. I used to have a Bible study in a fraternity. um, And none of these guys had been to church. Well, one guy said he had been for some wedding. (laughs) But other than that, they'd never been to church. They'd never read the scriptures. And when I asked them, do you know who Jesus is? They said, no. I mean, that's pretty honest. And it's pretty astonishing, you think, in terms of today's age. So we would begin studying the scriptures. And we'd start in John 1. John 1 and along the way, you know, they would say they would say things like, well, you know, why do you Christians do this? Because they'd read something in the paper or seen it in the news, you know. And we talk about it for a little while and I say, well, is that what Jesus is like? And we go back to the scriptures. And what happened a few months later was that they had three categories then in their minds. They 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 they, they described themselves who they were my friends, but they weren't Christians. And then there were Christians, and then Dan, who was his, their friend, and who was a follower of Christ. And they created a third way. And, 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 and along the way, what they did was that they began to fall in love with Christ. You know, and they'd be cheering him, you know, as he would kind of take on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, and, and, you know, and he'd be doing cool things, and they would, they would they were really get into this. And it was interesting that one by one, these guys came to Christ. The reason I say start here is that when you think about God and what he wants, it's really a really hard concept, isn't it? If we were to just say, okay, what comes to your mind when you think about God to the normal person, you know, all of the circuits kind of blow up. It's kind of static, you know, on the screen, right? Because you can't get your hand around it. God knew he had a problem with communication to us. And so John 1 says, and so the word, this concept, this idea, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so that we could behold the grace and the truth in his life. We have a lot of things out there where we say, what is true? What we know is true is Jesus. And when we we look at the issues of our day, we shouldn't look at it through just the the prism or the filter of a philosophy or principles and things like that. We have to hold it up and superimpose on that and, and drop the presence of Christ into there and say, how would he respond to that issue? What would he be like in the middle of that? What would he say? What would he draw forth? What would he put his finger on and heal? And so again, coming back to knowing God, you know, I just say let's live closer to the humanity of Christ in that regard and look at him as the truth. Then the second thing I think is that we don't understand the character of wisdom. And, I, and I, I learned this some years back when I was thinking in a couple of situations in, in, in business. And it, just, it was really bothering me because d- decisions were being made in this company. And, and on paper, empirically and logically and strategically, it all seemed to line up and I thought that that's right, but that's wrong. And and so I came across these verses in James. And what James is saying is that there is a wisdom in this world. It has logic. It's tight. It's rational. It makes sense. It says that should be the conclusion, but there's something wrong. And so in James 3, it says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The idea, though, is that wisdom has a character to it. And by the character of that wisdom, you can know the source. And so when people give you these airtight arguments about their position on something or another, but it's accompanied by these things, you can know that that's not true. You know, within the echo chamber of that, it's all true. But when you step back outside of it and look at the character of the wisdom, you realize that's not true, but we're looking for Capital T, truth, and capital W, wisdom. And so he says, Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Think about the great debates that are going on across our country. All of the issues that were stirred up by the recent political season and now. And the response, and has the response to those things been good conduct, meekness, purity, Peaceableness, gentleness, and openness to reason. Mercy, good fruit, impartiality, sincerity, righteousness. Whenever you see those, and I don't care whether the source is left or right or right, you know, whatever it is. If it's accompanied by the wrong character, it's not the truth of God. Daniel's second-to-last strategy here was the compromising of his followers at the level of core convictions. Remember where the king had assigned them the daily portion of food from his banquet? And, you know, here were were guys that had been starving under 18 months of siege and four months of forced marching, and now they've got, you know, they've got the biggest buffet they've ever seen in their life in front of them and the best wines in the world. And... And so what happened was that, and, and it was really, in some ways, it was pretty pragmatic. They just needed, they needed to kind of fatten up these guys and get them in shape so they can put them to work. But Daniel drew a line, and so you think, why did he draw the line there? And I alluded to it a little bit yesterday, so I'm going to go quickly here. One was that it could have been food that was sacrificed to idols, and he knew from Leviticus that the nation... Uh, it was under judgment for violating those laws. But also I think he could see that compromise and accommodation that led to dependence on the king in Babylon where all of a sudden you got so used to his good stuff that you couldn't live without the stuff, made you beholden to him. And that happens in our, our materialistic world where we get used to what that world gives us. We get used to certain things And now we can't extricate ourselves from the world because we're dependent upon it. But it was a daily battle, wasn't it? Because you ate every day and it was a daily battle for holiness, devotion, and obedience. And every one of these battles runs through a heart and as Patricia was saying, point us to the idols in our heart that are vying for our attention. And the question is, what are the idols of today? Well, it's anything that holds a grip on us, isn't it? I was listening a little bit to the technology little workshop, you know, and uh, you know the suggestion that you guys uh, maybe have a little bit of a sabbatical from your technology, you know, you know, and you'll be trembling right for the next couple of days, you know, as you're feeling these phantom buzzing phones and you're, you know, and things like this going on, right? Because you're so, I mean, and but it's but it's not just te- the technology. Technology is an is an interesting thing our time. Because we think it's neutral, but it's not. Technology has a way of shaping the way we behave and interact with people. If you wanna read more about it, the French sociologist by the name of Jacques Ellul wrote a, a, a pretty strong treatise on, on the impact of technology and the idolatry of technology. It's like this, Churchill once said, first we make our buildings, then they make us. And we make these things, And then they begin to shape our behavior. And and our idols begin to do that. We get used to certain things in our lives and then we depend on those things in our lives. And all of a sudden, we trust those things for areas that we should be trusting God for. So the question in my mind again is, do you recognize these tests? What are the daily battles are you fighting? And are you praying for each other daily and encouraging each other for one another, for your holiness. When you think about Daniel and his three friends, young guys, that was probably the first student prayer meeting in history. <laughs> okay, and what were they praying for? They were praying daily prayer for encouragement and, for the ho- and their holiness. When you guys get together, do you pray just, do you pray? I'm sure you pray to encourage one another but do you also pray for one another to stay true in your daily battle to be holy to God and to be honest about that? I think another thing that Daniel learned was how to respectfully seek favor with God and man. Daniel, when he went, he didn't say, okay, he's going to throw a big protest. In fact, probably his, his, his... His his challenge was known only to his immediate supervisor, so to speak. But Daniel discerned that the intention necessarily, that what they really wanted was to try to get them healthy and fit for service. And so what he did was that he approached his supervisor in such a way that he said, here's an alternative. Let's test it out here because I see what you're trying to do. You want us healthy and fit. And it was a respectful response, wasn't it, to authority. And and so he he learned to discern what was going on, and then without compromising, respectfully interact with the people around him. Daniel constantly, like Jesus, sought favor with God and man. We think a lot of times in our battle for the world, it's constantly God or man. But as you're going out in your profession, most of the time, If you understand the intent, you can do so in a way that's respectful both of God and man. And if man doesn't respect that, then you have the courage to stand with God and pay the price. But notice that Daniel never sought the favor of man over God. So as much as it's within your power to do so, live at peace with all men with respect and grace. And then the final challenge here was his response to this crisis of identity. That was compounded by suffering, dislocation, you know. His his gender was mutilated, you know, so who is he? And then his names were challenged, right? But what's interesting is that Daniel never protested against the changes of the names. And as you go through the book of Daniel, you see a kind of a back and forth where sometimes he's called, you know, uh, Belteshazzar, sometimes he's called Daniel, but he always refers to himself as Daniel. And and that's how he thought of it. There's there's no control over what others call us, and yet in today's world, we fight violently to make sure that other people call us the right thing when it really doesn't matter. What really matters is that we understand who we are and we understand who God calls us. And we stand in that. Do you understand who who you are? Daniel knew who he was in the sight of God. He knew that he was beloved, you know, The scriptures tell us, you're a new creation. You're in Christ. You're a saint. You're a priest. You're a child of God. You're a holy one. What matters is not what others call us. What matters is that we clearly understand what God calls us, and we rest in that. The result of Daniel's life and those things like that was that his life, his skill... His ability were judged to be 10 times better than all the others. He ruled and served for 70 years in a pagan kingdom, serving four different rulers and three different empires. A 15-year-old boy As broken as anybody can be, used by God. So let's let's review and close by just thinking about some questions. Do you know Him? What does your life reveal about your knowledge of God? When people look at us, do they say, God is like that? I want to know that God. Is your life standing in and revealing his presence, character, and promises? Have you asked God to show you his glory? And does his glory fill all your life or just some shelf? Have you banded together with a few friends for prayer and encouragement to live in holiness? Are you letting the world around you squeeze you into its mold? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Can you discern the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom from above? Are you standing firm in your convictions and not accommodating or compromising? And are you holding fast in your convictions with both respect and courage? Do you understand who you are? Do you understand your true identity? Do you ever just stand in wonder of who God is and who he says you are? Think about this for a second. Daniel seems far away, this exile. But the Apostle Peter said, we too are aliens and exiles. And Daniel stands, I think, as a bright example to us young people, an old guy like me too, (laughs) of what it means to live in this world today. Father, thank you so much for the example of Daniel. And I pray that we would wrestle and embrace the questions that you ask of us so that in spite of our brokenness and in spite of everything that we've come through, that we realize that the reality that we stand in is your faith, steadfast love, and faithfulness to us and your never-ending mercies. Help us to have the discernment and wisdom of Daniel, the courage of Daniel, the humility of Daniel, and help us, Lord, in whatever sphere you put us into, to stand and to point people to the Most High God. And I just pray that you would prepare our hearts tomorrow, for tomorrow, as we think about the effect of Daniel on the lives of others. And we, and we take from that, Lord, lessons in terms of how we too can affect others and serve others for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.